Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I spoke about at the beginning of the year when we talked about, uh, when, we, when I was doing this session on Jesus, right, Jesus of Nazareth, like, Lord, liar, lunatic, that whole thing that what we were trying to get across in many ways was the historicity of Jesus. That this faith of ours, this faith of ours does not start with like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like this narrative of Christianity, this narrative of of the Catholic faith does not begin this way. Um, I want to show you a clip. This is... uh, uh, some parishes, I've been trying to convince our music director to do this for, well, three years now. The Midnight Mass, you can do this thing called the Christmas Proclamation. It's really, really, really cool. Uh, listen, to, listen to the words. Listen to how the, uh, the announcement of the birth of the Savior, uh, how the church celebrates this in ritual. Isn't that awesome? 
I think that is so awesome. One of my favorite lines is, around the 1,000th Olympiad. <laughs> I love that. Like, look, right? Like, our faith, it's, it's nailed to history. Like, it's nailed to history. We, like, we reference Caesar Augustus. We reference when Quirinius was governor of, C of Syria, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, when... Um, Gallio, remember we talked about Gallio when he was proconsul of Achaia, like all of these things. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I had a kid in the school, this was maybe a year or two ago, ask me, you know, we do questions all the time, and one of the kids asked, he was a fifth grader, Father, what's a Pontius Pilate? I was like, what? Like he was crucified under a Pontius Pilate. What's a Pontius Pilate? I'm like, isn't that great? Another good one is the, uh, the every once in a while, a kid will ask, what is, what's the INRI about? Like, the INRI? Like, you want on the top of the cross, I-N-R-I? What's the INRI? Like, it's an acronym. It's an acronym. We'll talk about that. But I always think that's pretty cute. Okay. So it's important for us to grasp this big picture that our faith transcends time but has been unfolding through time. And it's important to grasp the big picture. Speaking of the big picture, let's look at this big quote from the Catechism. This is paragraph 759, if you want to write it down or re return to it. The Eternal Father, the Eternal Father, in accordance with the utterly gratuitous and mysterious design of His wisdom and goodness, created the whole universe and chose to raise up men to share in His own divine life, to which He calls all men in His Son. Just pause there for a second. This is, that first sentence is in many ways what I've been calling, what the scriptures call, what the catechism calls, God's plan of loving goodness. Like, why did he make us? Out of an utterly gratuitous and mysterious design, he created the whole universe and chose to raise up men and women to be his slaves. No, no. To share in his own divine life. Right? His own divine life. To which he calls all men in his son. The father determined to call together in a holy church those who should believe in Christ. This family of God is gradually formed and takes shape during the stages of human history in keeping with the Father's plan. In fact, already present in figure, meaning like in seminal form, already present in figure at the beginning of the world, this church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel. And the old alliance, I love that phrase. It feels like Star Wars or something, right? <laughs> the old alliance, right? Established in this last age of the world and made manifest in the outpouring of the Spirit, it will be brought, meaning the church, it will be brought to glorious completion at the end of time. So here's just something like, as a little separate aside, um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but... There's a lot of people in the church right now who are freaking out about the church and about the world and about the culture and things like that. And there's, I heard someone asking recently, someone asked me, like, is the church going to survive this? And it, like the answer that, like the church is the only thing that is going to survive all this. Like, and you know what? Because it's God who's doing it. It's God who's doing it, which is really good news. So when it seems really, really, really dark, and it's going to get dark, and it's going to get darker, when it gets dark, just wait, it's going to get darker, like, just wait three days, kind of an idea. Because when things are at the darkest, that's when the Lord comes forth in His glorious triumph, right? So this church, this, this church, this was God's plan in history. The church is, it's like this mystical, it's not an organization, it's an organism, 
It's an organism, it's a mystical organism that grows organically and develops slowly in and through time. You can think of it planted at the world's beginning and it's just slowly grown through time. It's slowly grown through time. I was going to show you a clip of, of this tomato plant growing. I'm like, ah, you can picture what organic growth looks like. So we're going to skip that. Or do you want me to show the tomato plant? I'll skip the tomato plant. Maybe if there's time at the end. So here, I'm going to ask you this question. I want a little feedback here. How do you think most people conceive, when, when people think about like, like the question, what is history? What drives history? What, what do you think most people, or what do you, how would you answer that question? How do you think most people would answer that question? What is history? What drives history? Like the topic of history. What, what are we even talking about? What is it? Fake news. All right, Kim. I like, I like it. Here we go. Hashtag fake news. What else? In. What's that? Major events. Major events. Yeah. Anything else? And women, 2023, Chris. Good Lord. I'll be the DEI guy up here, okay? Uh-huh. Jeez Louise. <laughs> Fake news. Okay. I think, yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot of people think of, yeah, the great events. And I think a lot of people would say that it's, it's, it's random, that it's not, it's not, it's not guided towards something. It's not guided towards something. That we're, I mean, in a secular world, like, there's no, there's no end point. It's just matter in flux and events happening and people do, like, there's no, there's no reason behind it. There's no reason behind it. I want to I read this from, this is, I, I've read, I think I've shared stuff from, from John Eldridge before, but this little book here, is beautiful. It's so good. It's called Epic, the story God is telling. And and if you want to just a really good spiritual, I don't know, just a spiritual read that kind of dives into this topic a little bit more deeply, this would be a great book for you. And look, it's look how small that is. So it's a it's a bathroom reader. Yeah, <laughs> y'all know what I mean. All right, listen to this. He writes this. For most of us, life feels like a movie we've arrived at 45 minutes late. Something important seems to be going on, maybe. I mean, good things do happen sometimes, beautiful things. You meet someone, fall in love, you find that work that is yours alone to fulfill, but tragic things happen too. You fall out of love, or perhaps the other person falls out of love with you. Work begins to feel like a punishment, everything starts to feel like an endless routine. If there is meaning to this life, then why do our days seem so random? What is this drama we've been dropped into the middle of? If there is a God, what sort of story is he telling here? At some point, we begin to wonder if Macbeth wasn't right after all. Is life a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? No wonder we keep losing heart. This is, this is our world right now. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that is sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful, often a confusing mixture of both, and we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. It's like we're holding in our hands some pages torn out of a book. These pages are the days of our lives, fragments of a story. They seem important, or at least we long to know they are. But what does it all mean? If only we could find the book that contains the rest of the story. Chesterton had it right when he said, With every step of our lives, we enter into the middle of some story which we are certain to misunderstand. 
the world has lost its story. How that happened is quite a story as well, one we haven't time for here, but the latest chapter of that story had to do with the modern era and how mankind looked to science to solve the riddle of our lives. As Neil Postman said about the scientific view, in the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and our end is, to say the least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin? Science answers, probably by accident. To the question, how will it all end? Science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. Ooh, right? Book drop. <laughs> it's really good stuff. So one of the most amazing things about our modern world is that this into the bloodstream of our culture right now. So our culture, our secular culture that's, that's stepped away from the Christian worldview, um, it, is, it is Christian still in its, in its DNA and its scaffolding, its view of the world, right? So it was the Jewish people, because of their relationship with God, who saw history as moving towards something, moving towards a better future, right? Before the Jewish religion before God began to interact with the people of Israel, the ancient peoples, it was a, it was a view of, of nature and the gods where it was cyclical, that, that we weren't moving anywhere, right? So this idea of progress, that we're heading somewhere, it's out of the Jewish worldview. Like the Jewish people, the Jewish people discerned that, like they discerned deeper realities that were operative within the, the events of life, right? That they saw, they saw beneath like the rising and falling of empires and kings and migrations of people and plagues and marriages and births and deaths, they saw that all of it was significant. It was part of a grand story. Like this is why, this is why the Jews were obsessed with genealogies. You go to the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, why, like all these names, why? Because that stuff matters. That stuff matters. Right? So as Christians, we believe that God is guiding the human story. He's guiding all of this towards this incredible culmination. And this grand story goes by the name of salvation history. Salvation history. It's the, it's the mystery behind the events and the happenings of history. I put it that way. Salvation history is the mystery behind the history. You with me? Should I say it one more time? It's the mystery behind the history. Okay, it's the, it's the big picture. It's, what, it's, it's God, what are you doing? It's what are you doing? And all of, all of that stuff that's in, the, it's in your Bible, right? This, this stuff that the new atheists call, you know, Bronze Age mythology. Yeah, well, that Bronze Age mythology, it, it, has, an, it has incredible bearing upon our life today. I just watched a video last night driving home from, I was hearing confessions at a retreat of, uh, of Jordan Peterson, a little piece, I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast, um, where he's talking about the most foundational text. Maybe some of you have seen this, that the Bible um, is the, he's like, it's not just true, it's the, it's the truest truth that there is. It's the text upon which everything in Western, Western civilization is based. It's, fa it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Okay, but admittedly, all of this can be really hard to grasp. Um, so Scott Hahn, Dr. Scott Hahn, who I think we've read quotes from him so far this year, but he's an amazing uh, Protestant convert to the Catholic faith, <laughs> biblical scholar, teaches at Franciscan University of Steubenville. This is a, this, I love this quote from him. I had finally begun to see the big picture of salvation history. 
and how all the innumerable puzzle pieces fit together into a big, beautiful, divine love story. All the many names, places, and events in Scripture often leave first-time readers feeling overwhelmed and bewildered. Anybody felt been there before? The Ammonites, the Moabites, the Megabites, the Mosquitoites, you know, like all the, like, who are these people, right? Okay, honestly, it took me years, years before I formed a mental map to find my way around Scripture, especially the Old Testament, without getting lost. Megabytes, Ammonites, Mosquitoites, all the bites. But once I mapped out the peak events of the mountain range of salvation history, I finally got the big picture. This is what we're talking about today. We want to get familiar with the peaks of the mountain range because the peaks of the mountain range of salvation history are the various covenants that God has formed with his people along the way. This idea of covenant is absolutely key for us. It's key for understanding the scriptures and it's key for understanding who we are as a church and who we are as Catholics. So what is a covenant, right? Because we've heard this word covenant before. Again, Scott Hahn says covenants are not the same as contracts. They're not the same as contracts. Covenants differ from contracts just about as, just about as much as marriage differs from prostitution. They're very different. They're very different. Right? A contract is an exchange of property. This is yours and that is mine. Right? Covenant is an exchange of persons. I am yours and you are mine. That's what covenant is. That's what covenant is. Covenant, when you hear the word covenant, think marriage. Covenant is what bonds people together. It's what unites people. And it's, what, it's the pact that God has used to unite us to himself. It's what a covenant is. This is how the church understands um, her own liturgy. Look at this. This is from the preface of one of the Eucharistic prayers that the priest can pray at Mass, Eucharistic Prayer 4. So the priest could, would say this. And when through disobedience humanity had lost your friendship, what is the event by which humanity lost friendship with God? We talked about it last week. What's the event? The, say it like you mean it. The fall, the fall, right? When humanity through disobedience had lost your friendship in the fall through original sin, you did not abandon him to the domain of death. God didn't say, screw you, humanity. You should have listened to me. You did not abandon us to the domain of death. For you came in mercy to the aid of all. Think of it this way also. This, this struck me a few years ago, that everything that God has done in salvation history, every, every covenant that he's enacted, from Genesis 3 onward, it's all mercy. You came in mercy to the aid of all, so that those who seek might find you. And then this is the line. Time and again you offered them covenants. Time and again you offered them covenants. Time and again you attempted to glue the marriage back together. Time and again you tried to fix this. Time and again you tried to heal our relationship. Time and again you offered them covenants. And through the prophets taught them to look forward to salvation to our complete healing and restoration, to our complete redemption. Like the church's living tradition has read scripture with this eye to covenant. Like covenant has been how, like you heard it in, in the Christmas proclamation, like or when, when we celebrate the Easter vigil, when all 10 trillion of you come into the Catholic church and we spend nine hours in the church that night, it's going to be so awesome. <laughs> it's going to be so awesome. It's going to be so awesome. The readings, so there's, there's nine readings that we'll hear at the Easter Vigil, and we're doing all nine, baby. There's nine readings, seven from the Old Testament, 
an epistle from Paul, and a gospel. Those seven Old Testament readings are essentially a walk through the covenants. Right? So in the way that the church has devised her liturgy, all of that um, comes together. Or even the Sunday readings, the Old Testament is usually in line with the New Testament readings. So another way to look at this mountain range is this image right here. I call it the Salvation History Cheat Sheet. So what you see here, this is a visual depiction of this, this plan of loving goodness that God has been enacting through time. So through time, God calls a mediator. He, he's working with a particular person or group from humanity. That person has a, co the, the, there's a, there's a covenant role. The covenant takes on a particular form, and there's a sign associated with the covenant. So the first time that God's in relationship with humanity is the covenant he makes with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam's role is as a husband to a wife. So the primordial, the first covenant, the first sacrament is marriage. And the sign was, sa was the Sabbath. If you're taking a picture of this, that's fine. Don't worry, we'll, I'll, we'll send this to you. I'll have Chris and Deacon send this image to you. This covenant falls apart. We're going to go through this more. But then you have Noah. Noah is the father to a family, and then it's to a broader group of humanity, now to a household. Move to Abram, he's a chieftain, to a tribe, more people. Move to Moses, he's a judge, like a leader, like a, a, a significant leader, over a nation. The covenant is now with a nation. Move to David, and we're at a kingdom. So you can see how God is progressively expanding his relationship reach with humanity with each of these covenants. Then you get to Christ who establishes the new and eternal covenant, and he establishes a Catholic church. The word Catholic, I'm sure Chris has taught this, but the, the meaning of the word Catholic is universal. <laughs> so it began small, think of the seed, grows and expands to encompass everything, the entire world, the entire, like it stretches out to the entire ends of the cosmos. Okay, does this make sense? We're going to go through this a little bit more. Okay, um, because of this large overarching read, this view of salvation history, the church began to read and interpret the scriptures uh, through this method known as typology. So typology is, it's, it's this idea, it's basically this, that the Old Testament, things that happen in the old, prefigure things that happen in the new. So the, the Old Testament prefigures what happens in the new, and the new fulfills what happens in the old. I'm just going to show you this video that does a much better job explaining it than me. Back to our boy, Scott Hahn. Today's class is brought to you by Dr. Scott Hahn. You mentioned the word typology. It might be good to define that for the audience and maybe give an example of typology in Scripture. A type is something that prefigures Jesus Christ, like the Passover lamb, or like Moses uh, crossing the Red Sea. I like this setup. Uh, there are other examples yeah. too. I think what we have to recognize is that typology, as it's used in the Catechism, so is a principle that summarizes some very basic, reproducible, uh, practical principles for Bible study that the ordinary Catholic can employ. And when you do that, I think you'll discover, as I did outside the church, What's been going on inside the church for 2,000 years that makes biblical interpretation in the Catholic tradition so much richer, so much deeper? I remember looking at Jerome and Augustine and Ambrose and seeing how they viewed Matthew's gospel. I mean, that's a gospel I thought I knew so well. And then suddenly I discovered that you know, Augustine's point was well taken, that the, 
the New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old is revealed in the New. And he used Moses as the example of how Moses was the deliverer who brought salvation. But as soon as he was born, his life was threatened by this imperial decree that came from Pharaoh that threatened not only him, but all the Hebrew male children. And then he says the same thing with Jesus, who comes like a new Moses. When God sends the new Savior, his life was imperiled at birth by an imperial decree that came from a tyrant that threatened not only his life, but all the Hebrew male children there in Bethlehem. And then he looks back at Moses and says, God saved him by taking him where? Egypt. God saved Jesus by taking Jesus, Mary, and Joseph where? The same, Egypt. At the appointed time, Moses came out, went across the water and into the desert. You read Matthew 2, 3, and 4, Jesus comes out of Egypt, passes through the water of the Jordan River in baptism, and then he too went out into the desert. What did Moses do? Augustine explains. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. What does Jesus do? He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. What happens in that period of, of, of fasting for Moses? Israel is, is tested by God, and they fail the test. What happens to Jesus? He too is tested, only he passes the test with flying colors by quoting scripture all three times, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 to 8, straight from Moses all three times, and then Moses, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, ascends the mountain to receive the law of the covenant, which he gives the people, Matthew points out, what does Jesus do after his 40 days of fasting? He ascends the mountain and receives the law of the new covenant, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and he gives it to the people of God. In the old covenant, the people were rebellious. So curses were attached at the end. In the new covenant, Christ knows he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. So the Beatitudes are how the Sermon on the Mount begins, with blessings that are promised along with the Holy Spirit. And as you read Jerome and Augustine and Ambrose and these others, as you apply the principle of typology, you realize these aren't embellishments, these aren't coincidences. This is typology. Moses can't govern Israel alone, so he chooses from the 12 tribes 12 princes, and they assist. Jesus says, of two followers, he chooses 12. And he says, you'll sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses, even with the 12, couldn't govern Israel, so he appoints 70 more. In Luke 10, besides the 12, Jesus appoints 70 more, anoints them with the Spirit to assist him. When Moses is tired, he goes up the mountain to be alone with God, but he chooses from the 12 three closest, Joshua, Aaron, and Hur. When Jesus wants consolation, he goes up a mountain and chooses from the 12, Peter, James, and John. Aaron, Joshua, and Hur see Moses' face transfigured with the glory of God. So he wears a veil when he comes down. Peter, James, and John see Jesus' face transfigured with the glory of God. And then suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear. Well, why them? Well, for one thing, they're the only two men who have survived a 40-day fast in the Old Testament. But for another thing, they represent the law and the prophets, respectively. Moses gave the law. Elijah's the greatest of the prophets. And so here we have typology from the birth of Jesus through his baptism into the temptation, the giving of the law, the public ministry, the 12, the 70, then the 3, the transfiguration, even to the point where in Luke 9, 31, I discovered in the Fathers that the topic of conversation between Jesus and Moses up on top of the mountain was Jesus spoke to Moses about his departure, which was soon to take place in Jerusalem. But the Greek word for departure is literally exodos. 
Here's Jesus okay. talking to Moses about his exodus about to take place in Jerusalem. Moses is thinking, well, I know my exodus in Egypt. What about your exodus? I remember, you know, Moses could look back and say, well, the exodus came after ten signs. The first sign was to turn water into blood, the water of the Nile, and the water in the stone jars in Exodus 7. Well, what is Jesus' first sign? In John 2, he turned water into wine. Even the water in the stone jars, the same term that's used in Exodus 7. Later on, after turning water into wine, he'll turn the wine into blood. But, you know, here's the last of Moses' signs right before the Exodus. It's the Passover. What is the last of Jesus' signs before his departure into the heavenly Jerusalem? The new Passover. Eucharist. I am convinced Imagine that being that guy going to Mass. On the road to Mass, this is the kind of thing that those two disciples heard and then passed on to the apostles who passed it on to the early church fathers and it's been maintained down through the ages and now it is encapsulated here in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. What kind of parallel Oh, it makes our hearts burn with fire. Right? And, uh, it also reminds us how important the Old Testament was to the New Testament people. And one of the ways I discovered that is in the Apostolic Fathers, which were the writers, the early church fathers, who had learned from the apostles themselves, the other disciples. But essentially, before the Bible was put together in its present form, when you look at, for example, First Corner, all of its footnotes, they're all from the Old Testament. So it says that his theology, the illustration of his theology, was all coming from the Old Testament. When Paul tells Timothy all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work, he's talking about the scriptures, which was the Old Testament for him. Did you guys notice how he said encapsulated? He's such an idiot. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man, how would you like, I mean, I'm just so glad he's not my parishioner. That would be brutal to preach in front of Scott Hahn. <sighs> um, Chris, what was the hand motion you were doing watching this? Just mind-blowing. How, how, just give me some reactions. What was, how, how was that for you watching that? Anybody just like, 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 what, yeah, go ahead, Will. Mm -hmm. I have no idea that similar things happen to Moses. Oh, yeah. Like, where are those things? In the Old Testament, buddy. Deuteronomy, Exodus. Yeah, right there. That's that whole story right there. Yeah. It just, it, like, it just keeps going. You're like, how, how in the world? How in the world? Yeah. Okay, look, let's look at this quote from this, uh, this church father. His name is Melito of Sardis. This idea of typology, right? So looking, the Old Testament, or the New Testament was hidden in the Old, the Old reveals the New. In Abel, think of Cain and Abel, in Abel, Jesus was slain, in Isaac, bound, in Jacob, a stranger, in Joseph, sold, in Moses, exposed, in David, persecuted, in the prophets, dishonored. He became incarnate of the virgin. Not a bone of his was broken on the tree. He was buried in the earth, but he rose from the dead. And was lifted up to the heights of heaven. He is the silent lamb, the lamb, the slain lamb, who was born of the Mary, the fair ewe. He was seized from the flock and dragged away to slaughter. 
Towards evening he was sacrificed, and at night he was buried. But he who had no bone broken upon the cross was not corrupted in the earth, for he rose from the dead and raised up man from the depths of the grave. Like, I remember as a teen, um, I'll talk about this image in a second. Like, like I said at the beginning of this class today, like, this stuff is the stuff that completely like, captured me. I was a junior in high school. I just had my, my encounter with Jesus, my reversion to the faith, my heart set on fire, and I threw myself into every opportunity for youth ministry that we had at St. Mary's in Hudson, my home parish. And one of those things that we had was this thing called Word Out. Every Thursday night, teens would gather at Beth and Kent Davis's house. They were adult core members, amazing couple. We'd all gather in their house, and, and that evening we would just dive into this, the, the Sunday Mass readings to understand what was coming up, you know, uh, to, just so that it wasn't like the first time we heard it every Sunday. And I'll never forget Beth Davis explaining to us, explaining to me, um, the parallelism between the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and the story of God the Father and Jesus, right? Because you got Isaac, who is the only begotten, monogenes in the Greek, the only begotten, the only begotten son of Abraham. Jesus is the only begotten son of God the Father. God tells Abraham, take your son Isaac to a mountain I will show you. They travel for three days. Right? Isaac, the only begotten son, is carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back up the mountain to be sacrificed. He doesn't know it yet. Right? So the mountain that God points out is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the same mountain. It's the same spot as Golgotha, Calvary. So Isaac and Abraham, they travel to the same mountain. Jesus carries the wood of the sacrifice, the cross on his back, to the same spot. Right? Isaac begins, he lays himself down on the pyre. Abraham lowers the knife and he's stopped by the angel and they look and they see, we're going to talk about this in a moment, they see a ram, which is a male lamb with its head caught in a thorn bush. You've got a male lamb with its head surrounded by thorns. Does that sound like anybody we know? Yeah? Okay. That's the substitute for Isaac. That male lamb gets sacrificed. Like, I remember her going through all of this and just like being mind blown. Like you mean this all connects? These aren't just disconnected weird stories? Like they actually connect to each other. Like this is what blew my mind. So these covenants, these covenants are the mountain peaks to have a sense of this overarching story. And I, what I want to do after we're going to take a little break um, is I want, to, I want to journey across this mountain range of salvation history and just tell you the history of everything in 45 minutes <laughs> or less. All right, let's take, let's take like seven-ish minutes, all right? All right, let's, let's dive back in, y'all. Let's dive back in. So have in your mind that salvation history cheat sheet, right? So from, from Adam to Noah to Abram to Moses to David to Christ, right? That's, that's the mountain range we're traveling through here. That's where we're going through salvation history. So, of course, you got to begin in the beginning, Got to begin in the beginning, right? So you have to begin with our, our original experience. And we've talked about this quite a bit so far in Becoming Catholic, but our original experience of being human was an experience not of fallenness, right? The original experience was one of union and communion. That The original habitat, the natural habitat of the human heart is Eden. Like that's why we get frustrated with this world, because this is not the world we were meant for. We were meant for a world of perfect bliss and glory and goodness, right? That's what we were meant for. Fallenness is not our original state. Union and communion, 
love. That's what our hearts were meant for. That's what our hearts were meant for. But of course, as we know, uh, especially after last week, that we didn't stay in this place, right? We didn't stay in this place. It always cracks me up when I think about, you know, if you look at your Bible, if you open up to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? Like, that's as far as we got before screwing it up. Right? We got two pages in, and we threw it all away, right? Ah, right? It got so close. So the fall forms the backdrop of the drama. But to understand the fall properly, you have to understand the origin properly, right? So the origin was our union and communion. The fall is the ripping apart of relationship. Adam and Eve, they are expelled from the garden. The humanity is, is divorced from what we were meant for. And remember how the serpent comes to Eve and says, if you eat of it, the fruit, you're not going to die. God knows you won't die. Your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened. And look, they didn't die. Does that mean that God lied and the serpent was telling the truth? The enemy was telling the truth? No. Because the death that we're talking about here is a spiritual death that they expired respiration, to breathe. They expired. They breathed out. The divine life that was breathed into them at the beginning, remember that, that poetic imagery that God forms man from the dust of the earth and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and he becomes a living being? That, that the human person, filled with divine life, filled with God's life, like that's what gets breathed out. It's like the tires of our humanity got deflated. We breathed out, and in that respect, we died. We died. It's also like, think of um, those of you who are, who are gardeners, like when you're weeding or pruning, you know, you, you, or, you know, cutting flowers, right? You cut a flower for an arrangement or something. So you remove, you cut the flower, you cut it, you cut it off from its source of life, right? So it's removed from the roots and the soil and all of that. Does the flower immediately shrivel up and die? No, but give it time. What's going to happen? It's going to shrivel up and die. It's cut off from its life source. It's cut off from its life source, and that's, that's humanity. So we didn't die physically. We died spiritually. Again, like I said, I got a few cool clips. I want to show you this clip from um, the movie. is a little bit interesting, but there's some interesting parts of it. Russell Crowe, he did uh, Noah a few years ago. It's pretty, pretty wild, um, pretty interesting depiction. But this, I love this scene at the beginning telling this story. All right, back to this. And when through disobedience, humanity had lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the domain of death, for you came in mercy to the aid of all, so that those who seek might find you. And time and again, you offered them covenants, and through the prophets taught them to look forward to salvation. So after, a, after the covenant with Adam <laughs> comes the covenant with Noah. Good, Noah covenant with Noah. So I, I know oftentimes when we think of these Old Testament stories, it's easy for our minds to be filled with the, like the children's Bible imagery. Um, go back to what Jordan Peterson said about like the, the scriptures are not just true, they are the, the truthiest truth um, that there is. Like there is something foundationally true in these stories. This is theologically inspired myth. This is myth not in the sense of a made-up story, but this is the most articulate way to explain um, 
a truth that we believe about God and humanity, right? So there's something incredibly powerful about these stories. So what is this story trying to tell us? That the humanity had become quite depraved quite quickly after the fall. And God calls Noah to build an ark, right? He, build, he calls him to build an ark and to fill the ark with animals and plants, right? Two of every kind, right? What is the ark but a microcosm of creation? So if you look at Genesis, the very beginning of Genesis says something to the effect of the spirit hovered over, the Hebrew word here is tohu vabohu, which is a great hangman word if you ever want to really stump somebody. <laughs> tohu vabohu. What does tohu vabohu mean? It means, it essentially means chaos. It means like incoherent chaos. Like, that was the original situation that God orders. Like, he brings order to the chaos. He orders the tohu vabohu. So in this story, what God is doing is he's allowing the chaos to, in some ways, to resume itself, to, to reassert itself, and he preserves a microcosm of creation aboard the ark. God, when he creates the cosmos, he creates the cosmos to be like this grand temple. Like, the way that you read Genesis like the first chapter of Genesis, it reads like this liturgical temple construction. Like the, and the last thing installed in the temple is the image of the God, right? So who's the last to be installed in the temple of the universe? Who shows up on the sixth day? Man, right? The one who's in the image of God. So you've got this cosmos that then becomes a little microcosmos on the ark. Right? It's preserving a microcosm of God's good order. Right? This was the idea. This is a symbol. The church fathers saw this as a symbol of the church. Right? The bark of Peter. That the church is preserving a microcosm of God's order in this world of like floating on the seas of history is, is essentially the idea. So what God is doing is, is he's... He's establishing again his creative power. He's establishing again his creative order. So after, like the point of the ark was not just to simply preserve things in the ark. The point of the ark was that once the floodwaters receded, the doors would be opened and the ark was to flood the world with the life that was preserved on the ark. Back to the image of the church. The point of the church is to flood the world with what is preserved in the church. Right? The idea of the church is not to let the world flood into the church. The church is supposed to flood the world. If the world floods the church, what happens to the boat? Right? That's, that's the idea. The church is supposed to flood the world with the good order that is preserved inside of it. So, God forms the covenant with Noah and his family. Right? And he hangs the bow in the heavens. The bow is the, the symbol of God's his covenant promise that he's never going to destroy humanity again. It's it's again this, um, this reminder that God is saying, I am yours and you are mine. That's what this, like, that's what this rainbow is about, that um, God is restoring creation. He's restoring creation. It's, and it's, here's the problem with it. Like, it's not exactly like how the first creation was. Like, sin is still part of this world. Death is still part of this world. Because remember, like, in the beginning, God gave... God gave Adam and Eve all of the fruit trees and the plants for them to eat. Not saying that we were meant to be vegetarians, that's all I'm saying. But 
like God's relate, God established a particular relationship between humanity and creation that now after the fall, like there is an antagonistic relationship between humanity and the rest of creation. That's kind of what, that's kind of what Genesis is getting across here. And by the way, just this idea of the rainbow, how many colors are in the rainbow? Seven. How many sacraments are there? Um, how many, sa- how many um, days of, the, of creation are there? Right, good, okay. So seven is a significant number, right? It's the sign of the covenant. Um, what do we associate with the rainbow now? Do we associate it with God's covenant with humanity? Yeah, no, we need to hashtag reclaim the rainbow. That's what we need to do. The, if, you look at the, if you look at the LGBT pride flag, how many colors are on the pride flag? Six. Six. What'd you say? Seventy-two. <laughs> We're going to get canceled. <laughs> yeah, six. Seven is the number of perfection in the, the Hebrew world in, in the terms of number, numerology. Seven represents perfection. Six represents imperfection, right? It's, it's just there. It's almost there. The, um, oh, so, does someone have a question? No? Wow. <laughs> I even did that. I didn't even realize that. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing, too. So, like, the um, Hebrew doesn't have a superlative tense, so you can't, to say something is like the, the holiest, you would say something is the holy, holy, holy. It's a, th- a threefold repetition. Does holy, holy, holy sound like anything that you're familiar with, anybody? Yeah. It, we're saying God is the holiest, right? Sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. If you wanted to say that the enemy was the most imperfect, you would say he is the six, six. six. The imperfectest, right? The mark of the beast, the mark of the antichrist, right? Six, six, six. Okay, reclaim the rainbow. We're all we're all on the same page here. All right, good. Um, okay, so after the fall, after Genesis, after or after Genesis, after Noah, humanity again begins to spread, and again the human heart, plagued by sin, begins to fall into deep depravity and pride. Pride. So this is where we have the building of the Tower of Babel. Right? Humanity wants to, like, the, the phrase in the scriptures, make a name for themselves. They want to build a tower. They want to create their own mountain peak to establish themselves as equal to God. Right? So that's, what's, that's what this whole story is about, the story of the Tower of Babel. And so God, what he does in the story is he, he scatters humanity, diversifying their language. We'll see this damage undone if you fast forward to the end of the story with the story of Pentecost. Right, where all of the many languages are brought back together in the, the, the miraculous understanding of the many tongues in the event of Pentecost. Right? So God spreads the human family abroad by diversifying their language. So then after this, come to the next stage of the covenant journey across the mountain range. God calls Abram to be the next covenant mediator in Genesis chapter 12. And there's some incredible promises that God makes to Abram. By the way, Abram, his name gets changed to Abraham. So Abram means father of many. Abraham means father of multitudes. Father of multitudes. The promises that God makes to Abram are that he will make 
a great nation out of Abram's descendants. He'll make a great name, that is the founding of a dynasty, back to the Tower of Babel. We will make a name for ourselves. We will do this for ourselves. No, no, no. Don't appropriate the gift. Receive the gift. God wants to make a great name for you. Don't grasp at it. The third thing, a universal blessing, a blessing to everyone. In other words, salvation will come to every person through Abraham's, Abram's descendants. Okay, so these are the promises that God makes Abram. What's the problem with some of these promises given where Abram as, is at in life? Anybody know? Allison? He's wicked old. Bro is really old. He's, him and Sarah, his wife Sarah, they have no kids. And here's God saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of your descendants. And he's like, what descendants? Right? She's a grandma. We got no kids. Right? Like, this is not going to work. God always turns into Jerry Seinfeld in my impersonation when, I, when he gets really exasperated. Oh, this is going to work. Right? Okay. So these are the promises. So Abram, he's like, okay. And then God goes away and he's sitting in this promise and he's thinking, I, I, I got to do something about this. But this is all of us, right? We can't suffer waiting. If you look at the scriptures, being able to wait on the Lord, it, we just like can't do it. We grasp at solutions, right? We grasp at an answer. So what does Abraham do? He's got a slave woman named Hagar, and he sleeps with her, and he impregnates her, and she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. Ishmael is, is not, he's not the, the native-born son that God intended the promise to come through. Like, it's Abram grasping at the solution. I have a friend who says to me all the time when I'm just, like, venting about something that I'm waiting on, he's like, hey, don't birth an Ishmael. Just, like, give it time. <laughs> it's a great line. It's a great line. Don't birth an Ishmael, right? Okay, so, birth an Ishmael, right? Hagar and Ishmael, they go away. God returns, and he ratifies the covenant, which, again, is an amazing thing. Like, if, if you or I are the ones writing the story, we would probably think that God would just be like, all right, Abram, you had your chance. I'm going to go find, I don't know, some other guy. But he ratifies the covenant. He offers it again. And he makes it like even more powerful. But then something kind of brutal comes in because God says, okay, so the sign of the covenant, who remembers what the sign of the covenant is with Abraham? Circumcision. So picture now Abraham coming back to his tribe being like, guys, I've got good news and bad news. We've got a covenant with the Lord. And he's there sharpening his like flint knife. Like, Abraham, what's the bad news? Uh, so, you know that little piece of skin on the... Yeah, we gotta, we gotta cut that off. Why? What? I want us to think about this, though, for a moment, because... Again, like you can't, you can't really understand the scriptures unless we, unless you really look with with some curiosity and reverence at this mystery of circumcision. Like it is the sign that defined the Jewish people. It's the sign of the covenant that defined God's relationship to these people. That like God has written into or a little little side theology here. God has written into the female body a monthly reminder that sacrifice is associated with the covenant and, and the capacity to give forth life, right? Like, I'm a man. I, I only know this because I have female friends, right? But, like, I know, my dear sisters, that, like, the, like, your monthly cycle is a monthly reminder 
that sacrifice is involved in this, like right there in the sign of the covenant. And it's as if God wanted to carve into the man's body all, like another reminder for him, another reminder for him that he is, he, like this is meant to be a sacrifice. Like just where like Abraham, like he grasped at the solution it's as if God is saying, okay, like, I need you to be reminded right here that this will cost, like, all of this costs you. And it's funny, too, because Paul later on in his letters, he'll write and he'll say, like, things like, circumcise your hearts. Circumcise your hearts. He'll also say, like, we are the circumcision, which I've often said, I think that, like, where are those bumper stickers for our, for our church fundraisers, right? I think it'd be a great retreat theme, you know? Can picture the T-shirts. <laughs> the shirts say we are the circumcision. Anyway, circumcise your hearts. In other words, expose what's most vulnerable in your hearts. Like that. I mean, there is so much in that. I'm not going to go into it any further because we'll, we will lose all track of time here. But so God ratifies this covenant with Abraham. There's this powerful, bizarre scene where there's this sacrifice of animals and this light travels through these split apart animals and Abraham's in this trance and then the, these angelic visitors come back to Abraham and his wife Sarah and they said, you are going to conceive. And he's now really old at this point. And, and Sarah, she just laughs. She just laughs. And the angel says, that's exactly what you're going to name him because Isaac or laughter in Hebrew is Itzak. They named, they, God says, you're going to name your child Laughter. You laugh, you laugh at God, we'll see who's laughing now. You're 150 years old and you're pregnant. How do you think that feels, right? Okay, so fast forward now. So God is, he's given Abraham this child. He's given Sarah this child. And then he does something unbelievable. Abraham, take your son, your only begotten, and take him to a mountain I will point out, point out to you, and there sacrifice him to me in a holocaust. So as they're walking... Mind you, this is not Isaac as this little cowering little boy. This is Isaac. He's about 33 years old. Who else do we know is about 33 years old? Yeah. Does that seem, you know, like one of those things? That's, yeah. So you've got this strong man carrying the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain with his old father. So it's telling you that Isaac is a willing sacrifice. If he wanted, if he wanted to fight back, he could have. Isaac is asking his dad as they walk along the way. Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Asked Isaac. My son, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. Just notice the powerful double entendre here, right? So God stops, through the angel, stops Abraham's sacrifice of his son. And like I said, there's the ram with its thorns caught in the, its head caught in the thorn bush. And that ram is the one who gets sacrificed. Then, then Isaac goes through about 15 years of therapy after this scene. <laughs> he works through his father wounds. Um, but listen to this. This is Dr. Brant Petrie. He talks about uh, what we just looked at. The ancient Jewish rabbis concluded that the killing of animals in the temple by itself could not have meant much to God. No, the sacrifices must have gotten their power from somewhere else, but from where? And the answer they came up with was brilliant. From the near sacrifice of Isaac, known as the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, Abraham's obedient consent to the death of his only begotten son and Isaac's willingness to die out of obedience and love, 
These were things that did have real value in God's eyes. Since Isaac's near sacrifice took place on the very site of the future temple, some rabbis taught that the animal sacrifices in the temple were a kind of reminder or representation of the one and only really powerful sacrifice of Isaac. Just like Christ, his sacrifice is represented upon our altars, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so God's people, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has a son named Jacob. The Jews begin to multiply. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons, right? These are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. The youngest one is Joseph with his technicolor dream coat. Joseph gets sold into slavery because of his brother's envy. He goes down to Egypt. He becomes the viceroy of, of the, in the Egyptian uh, government. A famine strikes the land of Judah, and all of Israel's sons, the 12 tribes, they come down to Egypt to beg for food. And there's this incredible family reunion scene where they thought that Joseph was dead, but here he is. And he's like, suckers, right? And um, now nah, that's I paraphrase. So, uh, so then... All of Israel's sons, the tribes, they stay, in, they stay in Egypt. They begin to multiply and grow and spread. And then scripture says this in Exodus 1 verse 8, that a new king who knew nothing of Joseph came to power in Egypt. And this brings us to the enslavement of the Jews in Egypt. Right? This brings us to the next covenant, the next attempt to glue humanity back together with the covenant mediator of Moses, right? Moses, his story, Moses was a Jew. He was a Hebrew boy, like you heard Scott Hahn saying. He was a Hebrew boy whose life was threatened because of Pharaoh. His mother puts him in the basket, sends him down the river, and he's drawn from the reeds. That's also what his name means. Moje means drawn from the reeds. Pretty wild, pretty cool. So he's drawn from the reeds, and he's found by the Pharaoh's daughter, and she says, bring me a Hebrew wet nurse to nurse him. And they go and bring Moses' own mom to nurse him, which is like, how about that? Pretty good for him. So he's raised in the Egyptian high court, and in a very impulsive moment, he kills an Egyptian who he sees beating one of the, the, the Jewish slaves, and he buries the Egyptian's body in the sand, and then he flees because his life is now at stake. He's taken in by the shepherds of Midian. And there, as he's tending the flocks, he encounters something incredible. This burning bush, right? Exodus 3.14, I think. Where he sees the bush on fire but not consumed, and the Lord speaks to Moses out of this bush, and he says, I am sending you to Pharaoh. One of the most amazing things about Moses is that he had a speech impediment. How great is that? Like, God, like the instruments that God uses. He, doesn't, he didn't call, you know, Charlton Heston, really, to be Moses. He called st 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 stuttering Moses, right? Let my p -p 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 people go, right? That's who he called. That's who he called. And so the Ten Commandments or the Ten Plagues ensue. And what you see really in the Ten Plagues, it's a battle royale between the false gods of Egypt and the true God of Israel. All the, all the plagues, the striking down of the Nile, the frogs, the flies, the cattle, all of those things are associated with Egyptian gods. What God is doing is he's leveling judgment on the gods of Egypt. He's saying, these are not gods. You think the Nile is a god? Watch this. Blood. You think the frogs are gods? Watch this. You want to see frogs? They're ribbiting everywhere, right? That's what he does. He's, 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 a, he's bringing judgment down on the gods of Egypt. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And all that culminates with the death of the firstborn, right? The death of the firstborn. So God 
instructs Moses to tell the people, to tell the Israelites, every single one of you, every household, procure for itself a lamb, a year old male, that has no broken bones. You'll slaughter it in the evening twilight. You eat its flesh. You have to eat the flesh of the lamb. You have to take some of its blood with a branch of hyssop. He even instructs the kind of branch, hyssop, and put it on the doorpost and the lintel of your house. This will be a sign. The blood of the lamb on the door, the wood of the house, will be a sign to you, will be a sign to the destroying angel to pass over, Pesach, Passover, pass over the house to spare the firstborn. <coughs> So that's what happens. So these instructions are really specific. And that night, as they eat the unleavened bread, as they eat the flesh of the lamb, the angel comes in and claims the life of all the firstborn. Now look, if you were a Jewish family, right? And by the way, who are all the firstborn in the room? I'm a firstborn. My people, all right? Like if you were in that house and, and, you know, your father did all the things, sacrificed the lamb, you're like, I I don't like lamb, (laughs) Like, I'm a vegetarian, right? Guess what was happening to you the next morning? Zang Zidane, you dead. Like, you're not making it out the next morning. You had to eat the flesh of the lamb. You had to eat the lamb if you wanted to live, if you wanted to have life in you. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so they're driven out of Egypt. And they begin to make their way. And they come to the shore of the Red Sea, which again is a, th- a scene that I find just so incredible when you think about how God does things. Mighty deeds. He sends them out of Egypt and all of a sudden they're confronted with the Red Sea. They're like, crap, I got the Egyptians behind. The whole Egyptian army comes after them. And they're like, God, why? Like God brought them to a place where their ability to find a way there was, they couldn't find a way out of their situation. And God makes a way, right? God makes a way. I, can't, I couldn't resist showing you a clip from like one of my all-time favorite movies, Prince of Egypt, baby. Come on. I love this scene so much.
Ah, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Who's seen this movie? If you've got kids that haven't seen this movie, you've got to show your kids this movie. It's so powerful. Okay, so they make their way through the Red Sea. They come to the Promised Land, and they come to Sinai. And I don't know if you know this, but we have actual footage <laughs> of God giving his Ten Commandments to his people through Moses. Get ready for this. Moses went to the mountain, and God spoke up to him. Moses, this is the Lord thy God commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? Yes, I hear you, I hear you. Except not to hear me. What? <laughs> oh, Lord, why have you chosen me? What will you have me do for you? I shall give you my laws, and you shall take them unto the people. Yes, Lord! <laughs> Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh, hear me! Oh, pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah! Oh, that's the best. <laughs> okay, so here's something very important to recognize about the law. The, the law was given in the context of the liberation. That the law is not an expression of clamping down on their freedom. It wasn't as if God thought, all right, you Jews, uh, you're having too much fun. Here's some laws. No, the law is an expression of God's heart for his people, his desire that they would be free. It's like, if you would stay free, follow these laws. That's what the law is. So they build the tabernacle, the tent of the meeting, this temporary meeting place during their desert wandering. What you see in this segment of Israel's history is 40 years of wandering, 40 years of disobedience. And they finally come into the promised land and it's Joshua who leads the people. It's Joshua, not Moses, who leads the people into the promised land. After Joshua and his generation passes away, the people of Israel are plunged into turmoil for several hundred years. They fall into a cycle of sin against God, suffering under their enemies, sorrow for their sin, salvation under a God-sent leader. This is the time of the judges. And then the cycle of sin, suffering, sorrow, salvation repeats. Say that five times fast. It repeats. So look at, if you look at the, the book of Judges, uh, I'm not going to read this because we're running out of time, but the book of Judges in chapter 2, you hear just like the people just can't get their act together. Even when God raises up these mighty heroes, these mighty leaders, they fall into sin and apostasy. They fall into idolatry. And the people of God at this point, they want a king. They want to be like the other nations. And so God, he raises up and he appoints the next covenant mediator, which is David. David. God promises David several things. He promises, promises that David will have a son who will build God's temple, who will be the son of God, and who will rule over Israel forever. Of your, of your kingdom, David, there will be no end. So David begins to dream of building this temple, but God <laughs> says to him, no, no, it's not going to be you, David, who builds it. It's going to be your son. It's going to be your son. And just like everybody else in this story, David himself has this, his own fall. 
Like, there's a, a powerful line where it says, David, the time, of the, the time of the year when kings go out on campaign, David arises in the afternoon from his nap, which is like, just picturing David in this bathrobe and like belly showing, like, yeah, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. All the other kings are out fighting. He's just waking up from a snoozer. And he sees Bathsheba bathing across the way. And he says, I would, would like her. And he has her summoned to his chamber, and he sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. She tells him that she's pregnant, and so he's going to solve the problem. He brings from the front lines Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, this awesome man. David's like, Uriah, so good to see you. How's battle going? Great. How about you go see your wife? Kind of a thing. And Uriah's like, no, my lord king, this is, we, we, we abstain while we're in battle. He's like, yeah. Great. He tries to get Uriah drunk. Uriah doesn't go. He tries to bring him food. Uriah doesn't go. So David sends Uriah to the front line with these orders in hand that put me at the part of the battle where the fighting is the fiercest and then have everyone pull back so that Uriah is struck down dead, which is what happens, which is what happens. Like if you go to the, the Christmas Eve mass where you hear the, the genealogy from Matthew's gospel, you'll hear that David became the father of Solomon whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. That's right there in Scripture. That's like Jerry Springer level, like, oh, snap, kind of stuff right there. <laughs> like, that is, that is some, I mean, that is just brutal, right? Whose wife had, who was the wife of Uriah. Okay, so every one of these covenant mediators, they have their own fall. This leads to the Babylonians coming in and destroying Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C., Destroying the temple. I don't have time. I'm going to run over just a few minutes. If, if anybody has to go, it's okay. But I have, to, I have to get through salvation history. We're almost there, okay? The temple's destroyed. The temple's destroyed. The people are in exile. And the prophets of Israel begin to dream about, they begin to dream about restoration and covenant fulfillment. Will God ever do something to fully restore this covenant? The prophets Think of like Isaiah, think of Hosea, think of Jeremiah. These are the guys who are dreaming about a, a new and eternal covenant, a covenant that, that won't be broken, a covenant that won't be broken. So fast forward to the Annunciation. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of all of the covenants and the establishment of the new and eternal covenant. Why? Because Jesus fulfills all of it. Jesus is the new Adam, right? Christ is the firstborn son of a new humanity. He's the king of kings. He's the great high priest. He's the, the living word of God. He's the divine bridegroom. Jesus, the new Adam, is therefore, he's a new Noah, whose church preserves a microcosm of God's good order amidst, there's the word, if you want to know how to spell it, tohu vabohu of this present age. You will stump everybody with that word. Jesus is the son of Abraham, the only begotten of the Father, who carries the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain to be slain out of obedient love to the Father. Jesus is the lamb provided by God. Remember when Isaac asked his dad, here's the wood of the sacrifice, here's the fire, where's the lamb? Abraham's response, God will provide himself the lamb for the sacrifice. No one thought that he was going to actually provide himself as the lamb. For the sacrifice. And what does John the Baptist say when Jesus comes to the shore of the Jordan? Behold the Lamb of God. 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the seed of Abraham that blesses the whole world. Jesus is the new lawgiver. He's the new Moses. He goes up the mountain to, to, to deliver the new law, which is the Beatitudes, and He gives the Spirit, which enables us to keep the law, the power to keep the law. Just like Moses, Jesus provides miraculous bread from heaven. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the new temple. He's the dwelling place of God on earth. Right? That's what the temple was. It's the dwelling place of God on earth, and he's the place of right worship. Jesus gives a better temple than Solomon did, the living temple of his glorified body. And Jesus sits on David's throne and reigns forever. This was Gabriel's promise to Mary at the Annunciation. He will, his father will give him the throne of his, da, of his father David, and of his, king, of his kingdom there will be no end. That's Luke 2. Jesus, in giving the Eucharist, like the new, the new and eternal covenant, it is the new Passover, which we're going to talk about later on uh, in the year. The, the Eucharist is the, the definitive, the new and eternal covenant. 